Well, as most of you know, a week ago, my wife Vicki was hospitalized with some very scary and unusual symptoms that were finally, after some time in the hospital and a battery of lots of tests, diagnosed as transverse myelitis, which in simple terms is inflammation of the lining around your spinal cord. There's nothing she did to get it. There's nothing you can do to hasten its uh, exit. But it was nice to know what this is. Initially, the condition affected her arms and hands. She couldn't move those and affected that she couldn't walk as well as other bodily functions shutting down. So it was quite scary. Uh, Praise God today. She has almost complete use of her arms and her. I'm sorry. I did so good practicing this weekend in my bedroom. (laughs) She has use of her arms and hands back and she can walk. Short, really short distances, but she still tires easily. The doctors have said it. I'm really doing good. The doctors have said it could take up to a year or more for her to recover. And there's no guarantee that she'll fully recover. That's not how this works. Some people fully recover. Some people get a little better. Some people don't get better at all. But we're very grateful. Vicky's as sweet as can be. She's still Vicky. And she's looked at me and said, Brad, if it never gets any better than this, I can live like this. And, uh, and I've made my commitment to her and assured her I will live with you, whatever this looks like, and uh, walk with you through this. Uh, we're so grateful for your prayers. Oh, my goodness. Thank you for praying. Thank you for praying. Thank you for praying. It makes such a difference. And so many of you have shown love to us in so many practical ways already. Uh, she has looked at me and said... Uh, two or three times with tears in her eyes, which is really neat. It's probably one of the hardest things she's ever gone through. But to also be able to say, she said, I have never felt this loved before in my life. And she's not just talking about me, she's talking about you. I told her, I said, honey, they love you. They've always loved you more than me. And now, <laughs> and now it's their chance to show it. There's never really been an occasion like this for you to show your love. She said, I am overwhelmed. She said, I really thought that God used the We Are Family church sermon series in the life of our church. But she said this to me. She said, to be on the receiving end of that is just overwhelming. So thank you. Thank you. You are such a good church family. We are family. And that's why we chose to tell you what's going on. Instead of some of you know and some of you don't. It's not that you'll feel sorry for us. But it's that we just said, we're family. And I have to be honest with you. I want your prayers and I want you to have a chance to love on Vicky and encourage her. And you've done so well. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We sense it. But please don't stop praying. We believe in prayer. Pray that God would heal Vicky completely. I don't think it's wrong to ask that. Pray that God would have mercy on us. Pray for me to be filled with the Spirit. And this is my chance to lay down my life sacrificially And to love her and love her and love her and love her in ways that there just weren't as many opportunities perhaps to do so. So far, you can ask her yourself. She says, I'm doing really well. She's like, oh, honey, you're doing so good. And, uh, but this may not be a short thing. So it's one thing to start off in a sprint doing good. It's another thing when it's a marathon. But God's spirit can help us. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. There's what's going on. And, uh, but she does tire so easily. Just So we do appreciate no one has surprised us and just stopped by. That wouldn't be helpful. It's not that she doesn't love you. I mean, 
Just the times that I want her to sit up and talk with me. My parents were here this weekend. It's just all she can do. And so thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, but she does love the notes and the cards and a little bit of interaction in scripture. And uh, so thank you. And this is a very fitting transition into our sermon today. Here's what's so encouraging. This happens all the time. I plan out the preaching a year in advance. Do you realize that? August a year ago, I planned to preach this message today. And it is so fitting for what's going on in my own life. So turn with me to Psalm 77. Psalm 77, and I want to let our guests here today know that you've caught us in the middle of a sermon series where we're going through the book of Psalms, but not just any Psalms. We are picking out the Psalms of lament. Those are the ones that are written in a minor key. There's about a third of the Psalms written in a minor key. And what we're finding out already, because we're halfway through this series or more, is that the Psalms of lament, oh, thank goodness, give us permission to be human. And to admit our emotions that so often are filled with confusion and anger and fear about what all is going on around us and happening to us. Oh, but it's even better than that. There's something we've already seen that is so much better than just being willing to admit we're human and express our emotions. We've seen how these psalms of lament show us what to do with these emotions. And that is to pray your emotions out loud in the presence of God. So I want you to follow along as I read Psalm 77. And I want to invite you to stand in honor of God's word. Psalm 77. I cried out to God with my voice. To God with my voice. And he gave ear to me. In the day of trouble, I sought the Lord. My hand was stretched out in the night without ceasing. My soul refused to be comforted. I remembered God and was troubled. I complained and my spirit was overwhelmed. Selah. You hold my eyelids open. I'm so troubled that I cannot speak. I've considered the days of old, the years of ancient times. I call to remembrance my song in the night. I meditate within my heart and my spirit makes diligent search. Will the Lord cast off forever? Will he be favorable no more? Has his mercy ceased forever? Has his promise failed forevermore? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his tender mercies? Selah. And I said, this is my anguish. But I will remember The years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the works of the Lord. Surely I will remember your wonders of old. I will also meditate on all your work and talk of your deeds. Your way, O God, is in the sanctuary. Who is so great a God as our God? You are the God who does wonders. You have declared your strength among the peoples. You have with your arm redeemed your people. The sons of Jacob and Joseph, Silah. 
The waters saw you, O God. The waters saw you. They were afraid. The depths also trembled. The clouds poured out water. The sky sent out a sound. Your arrows also flashed about. The voice of your thunder was in the whirlwind. The lightnings lit up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was in the sea. Your path in the great waters. And your footsteps were not known. You led your people like a flock. By the hand of Moses and Aaron. You may be seated. Well, here's the first thing I want you to notice about this chapter. Point number one. Look at all the confusion that results from drilling down into the depths of your own sorrow. You can see it in the first nine verses. And it's pretty ugly and honest. But I don't want you to just see how ugly and honest it is. I want you to understand what starts to happen to you when you give yourself over to and head down the path of just drilling down into your own sorrow more and more and more. Here's the first thing I want you to note when you choose to get on that path and go down that path unrestrained. You will become morbidly introspective and start using all the wrong pronouns. In verses 1 to 9, when you look at it, it is just self on display. It's just self. Self is just shrieking and screaming. Self is what's predominant in the first nine verses. If you skim through those first nine verses, you'll see that the pronouns I, me, my are used 22 times. It's what I think. What's happening to me? My anguish, my sorrow, are what rule these nine verses. And here's what I think is interesting because our author of this chapter is someone we've already encountered. For two weeks, I I gave you two messages from Psalm 73. Who was the author of Psalm 73? Asaph, same guy. Baby Christian, mature Christian. Which is he? Mature Christian. He's, a, he's one of the head worship leaders. So he's no card-carrying atheist by any means. He believes in God. He's got a history of God's faithfulness. But here's what I think is interesting about the first nine verses. He just keeps God kind of there. But let's be honest. If you read the first nine verses carefully, God is nothing more than a footnote to my pain. He's just an addendum. He's a footnote. He's an afterthought at best. In fact, what he really says is, you know what? Just keeping God in the equation, because I'm not an atheist, doesn't even help. It hurts. It hurts. This makes it even harder that I believe there's a God. It hurts. Look at verse 3 and 4. I remembered God. Are you surprised by the rest of that sentence? I remembered God and was troubled. Troubled. I complained and my spirit was overwhelmed. You hold my eyelids open. I'm so troubled I cannot speak. Oh, he believes in God, but his belief in God is not bringing him any comfort because God, in this moment, verses one to nine, has become nothing more than a footnote to his pain because his own suffering is the symphony That he's taken up with. And God is nothing more than a crashing symbol that just adds to the noise and confusion that's keeping him awake. 
Never mind Asaph. What about you? What about me? Could this happen to you or me today? Oh, you better believe it. You can be in a good church, know your Bible, believe in God, and end up where Asaph is in verses one to nine. For some of you, listen to me, God is nothing more than a footnote to your pain because you are stuck in verses one to nine, so busy drilling down into the depths of your sorrow. Your own sorrow is the lead character on the stage of your life and God is nothing more than an extra offstage in the shadows. You say, Brad, where do you get this concept that he's drilling down into his own sorrow? Well, look at verse six. I call to remembrance my song in the night. I meditate within my heart and my spirit makes diligent search. Now, at first glance, that might look like some really good stuff. Yeah, it's not. It's not. What is going on right here? What is he doing that is not helping? It's not helping. I'll tell you what he's doing. He's meditating. Right, So meditation simply means slow down, chew on it, rehearse it, go over and over and over and over it. But he's meditating on all the wrong stuff. I hope you understand that meditation can either be good or bad. It can either help you or it can really hurt you depending on what you choose to meditate on. And chew on and rehearse and say to yourself over and over and over in the night watches when you're awake and can't sleep either over worry or in pain. And in those quiet moments and the pauses when the radio is not on or you're in the shower. Depends on what you're meditating on. Meditation in and of itself is neutral. The deciding factor as to what kind of fruit it will bear in your life is what you choose to meditate on and chew on. You can meditate on your problems and chew on them in detail over and over. In fact, one of the Hebrew words for meditate, and it's in this passage, is Hagah. And it gets used in Isaiah 34 to refer to a lion who growls over a bone and just chews on it and licks it and tries to get all the good out of it and breaks it apart and gets down to the marrow. You can choose to do that with your problems in detail. I'm not gonna let up. I've got the bone of my problems in my mouth and I'm gonna chew it again. I'm gonna bite it again. I'm gonna get down to the marrow. I'm just, how hard it is, how dark it is, how confusing it is, how unfair it seems. That is meditation, my friends. It's just the wrong kind of meditation. You've bitten down on the wrong bone. Please know from our series already, am I advocating, let's pretend we don't have problems and God doesn't want to hear us ever say, oh God, this is hard. Am I saying that? No. But that's not the same thing as saying, 
Because it's hard, because it's dark, because it's confusing, because it seems unfair, I won't let up. I'm gonna bite down on this bone and I'm just gonna chew it and chew it and lick it and lick it and talk about it and rehearse it and go over and over and over and over and over this. See, you can meditate on that way or you can meditate on the power and presence and promises of God in the midst of those dark confusing, fearful circumstances and go and lift that like a gem into the light slowly and turn it in the light by God's spirit and look at it from every angle. We tend to look at our problems from every angle and where is this headed and what if and what if and what if and what if and we go into details with our problems and then we consider God and his power and his promises in a very general, superficial, quick way. Not helpful. His promises, his power, his presence. Just turn it like a gem and letting the light hit all the color and clarity and cut and glory of that. And just chew on it. Drink it in. Don't hurry. You see, Asaph is meditating on all the wrong stuff in verses 1 to 9. In fact, the Hebrew phrase in verse 6 could be translated this way. I communed with my own heart and I dug down into my spirit. Oh, listen to me. That is a recipe for disaster and despair. If you turn inward and commune with your own heart, what's the Bible say about your heart? Jeremiah 17, 9. Oh, you'll find sunshine and light and truth and clarity there. It's deceitfully wicked and who can know it? Oh, I don't want to turn inward and drill down into my own heart and dig into my own spirit. It'd be like, it'd be like a little child that just keeps picking at a wound or a scab and then wondering why it won't heal. In fact, it doesn't, just get, it doesn't get better, it gets worse. But you keep digging down into the wound. I want you to notice what else happens when you head down this path of drilling down into your sorrow more and more and more. So you become very morbidly introspective using all the wrong pronouns. But there's something else that kicks in and you can see it in this chapter. You'll stop listening for any answers. Because you're so busy shouting rhetorical questions. Mm. You say, Brad, what do you mean? Well, he's, is he praying in verses 1 to 9? Is that a prayer? Yes. Starts right off in verse 1. Who's he crying out to? I cried out to? He's using words and he's directing them to God initially. It's prayer. It's just a really bad, unhealthy, unhelpful prayer. It's a prayer, no doubt. He's crying out to God, but guess what? He's not listening. He's not listening. Because he's so busy shouting, get this, he's so busy, and I'm going to show you here in a minute where I get this. He's so busy shouting accusations against God. He's not allowing any room or space to listen to God or receive grace from God. You have to allow space for grace. You can fill the air with your words. And you can rehearse over and over and over how hard it is, how dark it is, how confusing it is, how unfair it seems. And if you don't take a breath, 
you'll have a sense of, I just don't feel like I'm getting grace. I don't feel like I'm getting grace. I'm not hearing anything from God. You do realize, I hope, that prayer is not about all about you talking, but should involve listening and being still. Listening and being still. Don't hear what I'm not saying. The Hebrew verb in verse 1 could be translated. And Pastor Brian brought it out last week. I shrieked. It's that same Hebrew word. I shrieked. I shrieked to God. Can you do that? Can he take it? Yes. Yes. I shrieked to God. There's a place for that. And God can take it. But here's what I'd like to say to you. At some point, you're shrieking has to stop so that you can start listening or you'll never find rest and peace. At some point, your shrieking has to stop or you'll never find rest or peace. Remember Elijah when he was so depressed, so overwhelmed, so afraid, on the run from Jezebel, hiding in a cave, Way out of sorts with his thinking, thinking I'm the last one. I'm the only one that loves God. I'm the only one that cares about truth. And God came to him and outside that cave was a whirlwind and lightning and fire. And it says God wasn't in any of that. God came to him. How? Anybody know? First Kings 19. Still small voice. Here's what I would propose to you. God will not always shout you down. He'll just wait you out. If you've raised kids, surely you learn this, especially with teenagers. I used to go at it, toe to toe, back and forth. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then I learned, because I went through it five times. Just wait them out. Let them go frothy. Don't be frothy with them. And when there's a pause, say what you want to say, calmly. And when they go frothy again, just wait. Say the same thing again. That's how God operates. He won't, sometimes he, but he won't always shout you down. He'll just wait for you to stop shrieking. I love you. Listen, I don't want to hurt anyone here who's suffering. But for some of you, I would say God would love to comfort you. But he can't do it because you keep shrieking. God might be speaking You don't hear it because you keep shrieking. Pause. Take a breath. Be still. Commenting on this chapter, D.A. Carson says this, quote, Prayer, though vehemently verbalized in verse 1 and untiringly pursued in verse 2, was not the solution. It didn't help. The prayer in verses 1 to 9 did not help. Because it expressed, in fact, a fretful refusal to accept God-given circumstances. Now, it's a whole separate sermon series, but you might say, what if my circumstances aren't God-given? This wasn't of God. You're in the wrong church. We believe that God is sovereign, and if you're a child of God, nothing comes into your life that didn't come through his hands first. If it's happening to you, it's God-given. A fretful refusal to accept God-given circumstances. Indeed, God himself withheld the balm of sleep, bringing his child deeper into exhaustion till he could learn 
the precious lesson of resting upon revealed truth. If you take a posture of fretful refusal to accept God-given circumstances, you will never find peace or rest. I'm telling you, one of the greatest comforts that is rooted in Scripture is to know, I don't understand why, but this came from my loving God, not my enemy Satan. Nothing can come into my life that doesn't come through his hands first. I don't understand the reasons or the why or the purposes or how this could be good, but it came from my God and he only gives good gifts. I can rest. I can still cry. I can still say it's hard, but I can also rest. Some of you are are churning and the churning and your sense of exhaustion to some degree is rooted in you refuse to accept it as God-given circumstances and to rest. See, here's what you see from Scripture. Rest doesn't come from detailed explanations. That's our first desire. I need a detailed explanation. I understand because we're not animals or plants. We're created in the image of God. We're interpreters. So we constantly want to know why. But why? This doesn't make sense. How do I connect the dots between good God and he's for me and his promises and this? Understand. Been there. But folks... Until you come to understand, rarely do we get detailed explanations. When you see the scriptures, you almost always get a greater revelation of who he is in the midst of your circumstances. Not detailed explanations for why. As a side note, if you want to dig into this more, consider reading Job chapter 38 to 42. Job 38 to 42. Job asked a lot of questions. Oh my goodness, he's just firing off questions. And I don't even have to know you to say, all right, if you're guilty of thinking, but, but their situation's not as hard as mine. I bet Job's is harder. We've had a child die. He had 10 children die. My business, I've lost it all. My retirement, I've lost it all. His business was bankrupt. Oh, nothing quite like your health, though. Boils from the top of his head to the, to the sole of his feet, and he's sitting scraping wounds with broken pottery while dogs lick his wounds. Oh, but nobody's encouraging me. All my friends have failed me. My daughter's turned away from me. My family's turned away from me. His wife kicked open the back door and said, curse God and die. Oh, what a blessing. So there's Job. And he doesn't get detailed explanations for why. But oh my goodness. Prior to this past two weeks trial, it was already one of my favorite sections of scripture. Job 38 to 42 will just take your breath away with who God is. It's one of the most glorious. And because it's poetry, it's also beautiful. Some scripture is just beautiful. The fact that it's true is great also. But it's just gorgeous. It's glorious. It's breathtaking. Read it. It doesn't give Job any. In fact, we have more explanation than Job did. Because we're reading it after the fact. Job got nothing. No memo. No email. No heads up. Nothing. Oh my goodness. But he got more of who God is. To where he said, I lay my hand over my mouth. 
I've heard of you, but now my eye sees you. See, it's not bad to start. Don't hear what I'm not saying. Can you ask why? Is there any place to ask why in a prayer? Yeah. But here's how I'd say to you. You can start with why questions. Just don't get stuck on why questions. It's a great question to start with. It's a really bad question to stay stuck on. But why? But why? But why? But why? You say, well, can we ask why questions in prayer? It depends. It depends. See, listen to me. Here's what I think is going on. I want you to notice in verses 7 to 9. Look at verses 7 to 9. Here's what I think Asaph is doing that we are still so often guilty of doing today. He's making accusations under the guise of asking questions. You understand what I'm saying? I think you do. It happens all the time at work, right? Can you ask a question and it's not really a question? You ever been in a meeting at work? Somebody raises their hand and they ask a question. Everybody in the room. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to know. That wasn't a question. That was a statement. Worded as a question. They're not looking for more information. They just told the whole room something about what they think about what's going on. But they worded it as a question. It happens between husbands and wives, right? You think you can do the budget better? Am I asking, am I looking for greater data? Oh no, I'm ticked that you don't appreciate what I'm doing and I'm telling you, shut up, back off, say thank you, right? Was it a question? Was it a good one? No. Did it impugn the character perhaps of that other person? Oh yes, did it judge motives? Was it defending self? Yes, 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 yes. Live long enough and you'll learn how to do this. So how do you make an accusation under the guise of a question? You do it by asking rhetorical questions that are loaded with either sarcasm or anger. And in prayer, listen to me, whether you physically do this, it's an attitude. In prayer, you do it by shaking your clenched fists instead of lifting open hands. This is a posture of childlike trust and acceptance and humility. God, I need you. I don't understand everything, but I need you. This is a posture of high-minded, I know better, this shouldn't be happening, you're not a good God. You see, verses 7 and 9, Asaph's not looking for any insights. He's not listening for any answers because he's already concluded what he thinks about God and what God has done to him. And he's impugning the character of God and telling anybody who will listen what he thinks about it. Counselor and author Ed Welch, who, by the way, is coming to our fall training conference this fall, one of my favorite authors and counselors with insights as to why I do what I do and what's going on with me. It's not too late to sign up if you want to jump in. Ed Welch will be here this fall. He says this about suffering. Quote, suffering and the host of feelings and thoughts that get crammed into that word plead for a why. First, why is this happening to me? Then why love? Why work? Why worship? Why believe? Why live? Why bother? 
And then Welch goes on to say something that we can see played out right here in our chapter. Quote, when the why questions appear, they will be religious. As all why questions are, they will be about God. Suffering, of course, does that. It takes you back to the basic questions of life. It really does. It's not a fun thing, but it's not a bad thing to pick up every rock theologically that you say you believe and revisit it. Do I really believe in the sovereignty of God? What what do I think? How do I process this? It takes you back. It just clears the air of distractions and and causes you to want to think about what matters most. Feel free to start with questions. Just don't get stuck on questions or you'll never find rest because rest doesn't come from detailed explanations it comes from a greater revelation of who God is in the midst of those circumstances but now let me show you the turning point in this chapter because there is one we had a turning point in Psalm 73 there is a distinctive turning point in Psalm 77 as well you can see it in verse 10 look at verse 10 and I said This is my anguish, but I will remember the years of the right hand of the Most High. You understand what he's doing? He's driving a stake in the ground and he's saying, enough. Yes, that is my anguish. It's mine. It's awful. I've already said how hard it is, how dark it is, how confusing it is, how unfair it seems. But enough. I'm not going to airbrush it. I'm not going to pretend it doesn't exist. There it is, and it's that hard, and it's that confusing, and it seems that unfair. But it is not the only thing that I have to think about or talk about as a child of God. I will not let my world shrink down to the size of my anguish and my sorrow because God is bigger than that. It's, it's just so clear. And I said, who's he talking to? Himself. I mean, there's got to be that morning that you wake up or that moment in the car or that wherever where you just say to yourself, this is my anguish. I've told all my friends about it. I've told anyone who will listen. I've chewed on that bone and it's time to stop and talk about and think about something else. Don't hear me saying stick your head in the sand, but it's a matter of emphasis Do I have anything else to think about and talk about? Yes, I do. I do. I'm going to remember what I know to be true about God. And I'm going to, watch this. I'm going to push what I know to be true about God right up next to, on top of, around, and under my anguish and suffering. And that makes such a difference. I'm going to push it all right up next to that. Because so far, all I've been doing is seeing and talking about my own sorrow and suffering. And it's enough. Silah. It's interesting. There's a silah between the end of verse 9 and verse 10. Remember, silah just simply means pause. Take a breath. Some of you just need to take a breath. You've been like machine gun firing off your anguish and words and carrying on. Take a breath and say, that is my anguish. I don't know what else I could say about it. I've I've talked about it so much. 
think there's plenty of clarity there. Silah. And here's what I want you to see from verse 10 through 20. Woo! It is so different. Verses 10 to 20 is radically different than verses 1 to 9. And here's how I'd say it to you. Point number two. Look at how he chooses to start talking to himself about the faithfulness and power of God. Instead of just listening to himself being driven by his own dark feelings. In other words, he stops listening to himself and starts talking to himself. Do you know how crucial that is? Do you know how critical that is? If that's just confusing to you right now, I feel bad for you, but I'm glad you're here today. Because this could be a game changer for the rest of your life. What he starts doing in verses 10 to 20, no one can do for you. I can't do it for you and you can't do it for me. But oh my goodness, if you don't learn how to do this, your life will just be a roller coaster filled with pits and such brief moments of joy, mainly just pits. Because it's your choice and my choice whether you're going to listen to yourself and self-talks a lot or whether you're going to talk to yourself. Martin Lloyd-Jones, great British pastor and medical physician, says this, quote, I suggest that the main problem in this whole matter of spiritual depression in a sense is this, that we allow ourselves to talk to us instead of talking to ourselves. Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you're listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Oh, I love this. You have to take yourself, take yourself in hand. You have to address yourself, preach to yourself, and then you must go on to remind yourself of God, who he is and what God is and what God has done and what God has pledged himself to do. And then having done that, end on this great note, defy yourself, defy other people and defy the devil and the whole world and say with the psalmist in Psalm 42, five, why so downcast, O my soul? Hope in God, for I will yet praise him. Who is he talking to? Himself. Oh, you got to know how to do that. You got to be willing to do that. It is not being authentic and real to go with what you feel. That is one of the worst things you could do. Feelings are all over the place. Feelings are not tied to truth. Feelings do not honor God. Learn to talk to yourself. You say, Brad, how do we know Asaph's talking to himself instead of listening? Look at verses 11 to 12. In verses 11 and 12, oh my goodness, it's so clear what's going on here. There's four cohortative Hebrew verbs. I know that's a weird big word. And they're coupled together in these two verses. But a cohortative Hebrew verb was a verb of strong intentionality. It was a command to yourself. We would word it, let's. But nobody else is in the room. Let's do this. You say, oh, what are you talking about, Brad? Let me give you an example. Say you go to work tomorrow or you wake up in the home and you've been gone for 10 days on vacation. Oh my goodness, there is so much to do. Emails have been piled up. Voice messages are piled up. Projects have been left untended. Problems have happened while you're gone. You could be overwhelmed on that first day back. But instead, when you get there or you wake up in the home, You pour yourself a fresh cup of really good coffee. You flip open your laptop and while it warms up, you rub your hands together and you say, let's see what we can get done today. Or let's do this thing. Who are you talking to? 
yourself. And I hope you know that's not really weird. That's really good. That's really good. You're cheering yourself on. You're exhorting yourself. You're commanding yourself. And folks, many of the Psalms do this. You think about Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Who is the psalmist, psalmist talking to? And I already gave you Psalm 42. Why so downcast, O my soul? Open God, for I shall yet praise him. Self, talking to self, preaching to self. You can see it in these verses. Look at it in verse 11, 12. I will remember your wonders of old. I will meditate and remember your wonders of old. I will meditate on all your work and talk of all your deeds. You can either listen to yourself and your own feelings about your circumstances that will just spiral you deeper and deeper into darkness and depression Or you can talk to yourself about who God is in the midst of those circumstances. It's your choice. It's my choice. I can't do it for you. You can't do it for me. But oh my goodness, you've got to learn how to do it. And I want you to look at what he does. Here's what's going on. In verses 11 and 12, he announces, let's do this thing. I'm going to remember the works of the Lord. I'm going to remember his wonders. I'm going to meditate on all he does and talk. And then you don't have to wonder... Well, what would that look like? Verses 13 to 20, it's an example. You get to listen in on how he does this. He goes on and does it. He announces it in verses 11 and 12. He does it in verses 13 through 20. Oh, because the contrast is shocking. Because here's what you see. He starts praising God for praising God for all he's done in the past. Instead of accusing God for what he doesn't understand in the present. That's a point, so put it on the screen if you would. Worked really hard on that phrasing. Yeah. He starts praising God for all he's done in the past instead of accusing God for what he doesn't understand in the present. There is a massive shift of pronouns in verses 13 to 20. Oh my goodness. We had 22 uses of I, me, my in verses 1 to 9. Verses 13 to 20, there's only three references to I, me, my. And it is just loaded up with you, your, you, your, you, your. Look at it in verse 13. Your way, O God. Who is so great as our God? 14, you are the God who does wonders. You have declared your strength. Verse 15, you have with your arm redeemed your people. All the way through the end of verse 20, it's you, your, you, your, you, your, you, your, you, your. He says it's time to talk about and think about God and praise God out loud. Let me encourage you. When I'm really struggling, I do it out loud. Not in front of people, but in the car, in my office, in my chair at home. I mean out loud. Because when you're really hurting, your mind just wanders and drifts out loud. Because see, it's all about God now. Because it's been all about his sorrow for long enough. But I want you to notice what he does that's crucial to coming up out of the funk of your sorrow and sadness. He makes an appeal to some irrefutable evidence of God's faithfulness and love for him. See, verses 13 to 20 are not just some kind of cheerleading 
you know, with a superficial cheerleading, trying to whip himself up into a frenzy of a new kind of feeling. Oh, no. The only way you're going to come up out of your funk is if you have something solid to stand on or to go back to our bone illustration to sink your teeth into. Look at verse 15. Look at what he does. Where does he turn for evidence? Where, almost like a lawyer, he says, oh my goodness, there's something that's been lying in a box that we haven't brought to light, that we haven't brought as and as an appeal, as exhibit A. You know how someone, when they lose the case in the lower court and they appeal and they come back, they usually come back because they've got some new evidence that had not been presented. Like a lawyer, he says, here is my appeal to the lower courts of my emotions that have already ruled God's not faithful. God doesn't love you. God has abandoned you. You'll never taste his mercies again. He says, oh yeah, I think there's something that's been missing. Exhibit A, what is the word that ought to jump out to you in verse 15? Where does he turn? What word? Redeemed. What do you have, snowflake? (laughs) Redeemed. You have with your arm redeemed your people. What's he doing? He's reaching back to the Exodus event where God, when they thought there was no hope and they thought God had abandoned them and they thought, this is it, we're gonna die with our backs against the Red Sea and Pharaoh's army coming, parted the sea, took them through, swallowed up the army, destroyed Pharaoh after they'd been in 430 years of bondage and slavery to a cruel taskmaster. And then he killed every firstborn in the land of Egypt, but passed over every home of the Israelite who killed a lamb, sacrificed a lamb, and spread blood on the doorposts. He's reaching back to their greatest redemption exodus event. And it's the same thing we have to do. But folks, we just don't reach as far back. And we have something so much better. Better the cross. We look back 2,000 years ago to where Jesus hung on a cross outside of Jerusalem on a hill called Golgotha and where Jesus suffered shame and pain and where our sin was placed on him and he became sin for us and the wrath of God was poured out on him instead of us. Oh, you say God doesn't love you? Look to the cross. You say God has abandoned you? Look to the cross. You say God doesn't care about you or know you? Look to the cross. The writers of the New Testament always made an appeal and made the basis of their substance of why we could be encouraged in the midst of suffering the cross. They went to the past, not present, and not even so much hope for a better future, The cross, the cross, the cross. That's why Paul in Romans 8, where he's addressing suffering, Romans 8, 18 and following, where it says, oh my goodness, we're groaning. There's futility, there's brokenness. There's times I don't even know how to pray, but the spirit groans through me. Oh my goodness, what am I gonna do with all this? He goes to the cross. What shall we say to these things? Verse 31, if God is for us, Who can be against us? You say, how do I know God's for me? My child died. I have cancer. Uh, We've gone financially bankrupt. Verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, 
How shall he not also with him freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Furthermore, it's God who reconciles as Jesus was raised from the dead. And he goes on to say, therefore, nothing can separate us from the love of God. Not death, not famine, not persecution, not peril, not sword, not height, not depth, not angels, not principalities, not anything present, nothing to come can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You have to learn where to stand and you have to learn to talk to yourself instead of just listening to yourself. And that's why Jesus gave, the ordinance, gave us the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. And that's why he said, as often as you do this, do it in remembrance of me. We celebrate the Lord's Supper on a regular basis here so that we can make a fresh appeal. We try to do it about every month. So it only takes about 30 days, right, for you to, real, you to start thinking, he doesn't love me. Oh my goodness, what's... And we need to remember again. It's so we can make a fresh appeal to the cross as exhibit A for God's love for us. In the face of painful circumstances and feelings that are so often screaming in the lower courts of our circumstances that God doesn't care. God's abandoned you. God is... Look away from your sorrow and back to the cross where the man of sorrows solved your biggest problem when he became sin for us. Let me invite our men and women who are going to help me serve the Lord's Supper to join me down front. Let's pray. Oh God, thank you. Thank you for exhibit A. Thank you for a place to stand where we can shout back at our feelings and say, oh yeah? No. No. Here's what I know. My biggest problem is not a relational problem. My biggest problem is not a health crisis. My biggest problem is not a financial crisis. It was that I was on my way to hell and could never be right with a holy God. And God did for me what I could never do for myself and did it completely free. Free grace, free mercy. And it cost him his son for me. I will never doubt God's love for me. But will stand amazed for a lifetime. Oh God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit. And thank you for your son who died and rose again that we might live and that we might persevere through dark, painful circumstances. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.